Welcome to the Pilot Protection Services Podcast, where AOPA's legal and medical certification staff, along with leading industry voices, take on the challenges and developments that all pilots deal with. From staying out of trouble with the FAA, to becoming a better pilot, to staying healthy so you can stay in the left seat longer. Hey, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this AOPA Pilot Protection Services Podcast. I'm Gary Crump with the Pilot Information Center Medical Certification Group, and I'm here with Doug Downey and Dr. Ken Stahl. Dr. Stahl is a medical contributor to the AOPA Pilot Protection Services, and if you're a frequent viewer on our web pages, you've probably seen numerous articles written by Ken. Since he is a medical contributor, he's written some great stuff for us, and uh, most recently, a series of articles on topics dealing with pilot error and error avoidance. He is uh, an ATP-rated pilot and also an active pilot, too. Doug is a retired United States Air Force pilot who flew the F-117 Nighthawk fighter. His experience in that aircraft was the topic of one of Ken's recent articles that was titled Bandit 650. Doug is currently the president of Convergent Performance Corporation, an aviation safety and training company that is based in one of my favorite cities in the foothills of the Rockies, Colorado Springs. Ken, first of all, I know a little bit about your background because we've had the chance to talk some, some uh, in the past since you've been, become a contributor here, but if you don't mind sharing just a little bit more about your background in aviation and in medicine, as uh, you've kind of brought a broad spectrum of uh, professional training into the picture here, and we genuinely appreciate the contributions you've made. But tell us a little bit about how you and Doug met and how the title Bandit 650 came to be the basis for this great series of articles that you've written for us in the last few months. Sure. Thanks, Gary. It's uh, great to be here, and it's really a pleasure to contribute to the knowledge that pilots take up into the sky to make flying safe, which I know is certainly a goal of the AOPA and the Pilot Protection Services. You know, my professional career has been bifurcated. I have a parallel passion for surgery and have board certification in cardiac surgery and trauma surgery. And uh, pretty much all the time I've spent in operating rooms, when I haven't been there, I've been flying airplanes. And as you said, I've gone through the certification process up to ATP. There's a tremendous, tremendous similarity in the thinking that I've noticed in my training to be a trauma surgeon and thinking on my feet and a cardiac surgeon and flying airplanes. And certainly bringing Doug's story to to reality really typifies those two parallel professions. Um, The high altitude story is uh, Doug is, as you said, a Nighthawk pilot and flew with the call sign Bandit 650. And I'll leave the details of his flight for him to describe since it's such a terrific story. But the reason I I wrote Doug's story up, we are friends. We both have, uh, Doug is the president of Convergent, as you said, and I was one of the founding partners of that way back with three other pilots. But I I was writing story on using your imagination for safety, and it was all based on situational awareness, the three levels of situational awareness. And uh, Doug's story puts those three levels into reality. You know, a tremendous background in training, and that would be level one situational awareness, what happened previously. A quick grasp of how your mind quickly solves and grasps onto problems, which is 
level two situational awareness, what's going on right now. And his, his solving this terribly complex and near fatal problem that he faced in the Nighthawk jet really shows how you can use your imagination, which was a piece in the AOPA I titled Imagination is a Preview of Life's Coming Attractions, by really thinking through on the ground and imagining all the solutions that you might come up with to a common problem means that your brain can process the information so much quicker and end up with a safe solution. You know, Doug's quote about how he dared his plane to fail him and practiced for that in his mind, you know, in, in the, sitting in the crew room and how he really had worked out so many problems that might happen on the ground are the key to his flying through this hugely critical situation. The second part of his story that I'd like him to emphasize is how much he was able to slow time down when this emergency happened. And really, that's, again, a function of the three parts of situational awareness and having worked out solutions to some of these acute problems before they occurred let him slow down his brain and come up with the correct answer to what could have been a tragedy for him and for a lot of kids on the ground that were playing under him. And I think, you know, really, Doug, you need to give us the details of that. It's such a fascinating uh, story, and it makes the point so well. Yeah, that's a great lead-in, Ken. Doug, since we have never really officially met, uh, I'm, I'm anxious to hear a little bit about your background as well, because uh, this is just an incredible story. And, and I've got to give kudos to, to Ken just a minute. For those of you who have not read any of his uh, contributions to the PPS information before, I encourage you to go back and look at that. Ken has a gift of taking really, really complex medical information, terminology, neuroscience, that sort of thing, and putting it into really plain language English that even us pilots can understand. So go out there when we're done. Don't do it right now. Listen to the podcast first. But when we're done, go out and take a look at what Ken has written for us because it's really great stuff. So, Doug, please introduce yourself and give us some of your background that led up to that 117 flight and uh, tell us about yourself. Sure. Yeah. Appreciate being here. You know, like most pilots, I fell in love with uh, flying at a very, very young age. I was uh, privileged and lucky enough to go to the Air Force Academy where I got a fair amount of flying experience. And then uh, a little bit later in my Air Force career, about five years uh, into active duty, I finally got an opportunity to go to, to pilot training and uh, came out of pilot training with a fighter assignment. So my first assignment in aircraft after training was the F-16. Single seat, single engine fighter, tremendous platform, does a lot of good work out there on a lot of different missions. So I flew the F-16 for a few years, and then I got selected to go fly the F-117 out of Alamogordo at Holloman Air Force Base in New Mexico. So I had some early accidents of friends I knew in the F-16 really seared in my mind that, you know, it's a dangerous game. Even though we had the ACES-2 ejection seat, which was kind of your get-out-of-jail-free card, because it was extremely capable. Uh, an early accident in my career of a good friend of mine, somebody I went to the Air Force Academy with, they made a, a significant judgment decision mistake or error on takeoff and aborted a landing they should never have aborted, unsuccessful ejection, and, and, and it cost them their life. And from that moment on, with a lot of input from instructors, you know, they said, hey, it's easy to fly the jet. It's very difficult to handle the situations when the master let caution light goes off and how you're going to handle it. So the whole concept of 
chair flying or hanger flying or visualization or however you want to reference it, you know, I certainly was never the best pilot amongst my peers. So I was always trying to work hard to get to the top and be as good as my peers. And there's only so many syllabus sorties in a training or an operational squadron. So, you know, I, I took every chance I could get, whether it was sitting on the couch to the kitchen table and, and chair flying and visualizing with my eyes closed, especially that whole idea of what could go wrong. And uh, like I said, like Ken had mentioned earlier, a great technique that was shared with me early on was be ready for, for those situations that, that you're not ready for by daring the jet to fail on you. So, you know, one of my techniques I took from the F-16 to the F-117 world was on takeoff roll, which doesn't last long, right, with those types of engines and those types of aircraft. But it was, you know, in my mind to myself, I would dare that engine to fail on me. So I'd be ready to abort or ready to execute a, a low altitude ejection. So that kind of led up to that day at Holloman. That's amazing. You know, one thing I've observed in my years of doing this medical certification work is that so many of, of professionals who are in the business of aviation safety, they didn't just go to college and, you know, wake up one day and say, I think I want to get into aviation safety. They all, many of them anyway, came into this business through a very unfortunate experience, a tragedy, and their tragedy, loss of someone very close, and that just became their drive and their motivation to figure out, number one, what went wrong and what can we do to make sure it doesn't happen again. Your story, Doug, I think falls right into that category as well. So why don't you just jump in and tell us the story about Bandit 650? Sure. You know, the, the call sign, uh, anyone who flies the F-117 gets a bandit call sign, and the number reference is a chronological order of when you are certified as an F-117 pilot. So they started with the number 150 on the, on the initial uh, pilots and test pilots out at Edwards Air Force Base and up in uh, the classified range in, in Nevada. So I was essentially the 500th bandit, being number 650. Again, they started at 150. So this was, it was an afternoon training sortie flight out of uh, New Mexico. Normally you fly as a singleton, if you will. You go out as one aircraft. You might take off with two or three other F-117s, go to the air refueling tanker, top off your fuel, and then go fly your mission separately and recover separately. So on this day, I had already flown the mission. I had been at the air refueling tanker, coming back to the base to practice some training squares, and this was going to be a simulated single engine approach and go around. We weren't allowed to touch down to do a touch and go on a simulated single engine, the F-117, because it, it's very limited in thrust due to the configuration of the aircraft and the, the exhaust portion in the back of the airplane, if you've ever seen it. And then it was fairly aerodynamically unstable. So you never wanted to get into a slow flight, high angle of attack with any type of yaw. So you were allowed to go down to 100 feet AGL which essentially puts you over the threshold, over the runway. And at this uh, runway 1634 at Alamogordo at Holloman was, guys, if I remember correctly, it was 16,000 feet long or more. So if something happened, you, you, could, you, you could definitely put it down on concrete. So anyways, part of the parameters or part of the restrictions were you would retard one throttle back, not all the way to idle, but to 65%, because if, if and when you needed that, and you would need that on the go-around, two-engine go-around was the rule. You wanted that, that engine stabilized at 65%, so the spool-up would take less time. So on this spe specific simulated single-engine approach and go-around, when it was time to go around 100 feet, I was over the threshold. I pushed up both engines. 
And uh, the good engine, if you will, the engine that I was flying the simulated uh, approach with failed. And it failed instantaneously. But it wasn't a compressor stall. It was fairly benign. And then the engine that I had simulated failed, again, at 65% to get up to 100% thrust, was taking some time. And it's normally five to seven seconds, which I'll tell you what, when you're low and slow like that with some yaw, it, it seemed like an eternity and, and like Ken said, time, I didn't realize it until after I landed, but it, time truly slowed down. The immediate yaw effect on the aircraft took me over the grass. I was no longer over concrete, and uh, I was simply trying to assess the situation. Aviate, navigate, communicate, take care of the emergency, apply what we called the bold face, which was for engine failure. And we practice this a lot. This is called the PLAS, the possible loss of aircraft zone in the F-117. And again, low altitude, low airspeed, high angle of attack, yaw on the aircraft. That airplane does not like to fly. So if you look at the charts, the engineering charts, the airplane's not going to fly. In fact, our procedures were if you couldn't get to 250 knots and 1,000 feet EGL, the checklist said you're going to eject. Now, Alamogordo, or Holloman Air Force Base, sits right at the edge of White Sands uh, Missile Range uh, and National Park in New Mexico. So it's, it's wide open. It's about as rural as you can get. You know, we used to say, hey, you could dump the jet out here anywhere and not hurt anyone. So the whole, what we trained for and we briefed to was, if you get in the plaz, you can't get 1,000 and 250, you point the jet out in the desert and you eject. So that's what we trained to. We trained to it uh, repetitively in the simulator. Every simulator that you did, you flew at least two or three PLAS scenarios. So it was really ingrained in your, in your muscle memory. So you could respond. It, it, the issue in this day was the yaw, the immediate yaw, took me on a, a vector to the right off the runway, and I looked up and I'm pointed right at the control tower. And I really have no aileron authority right now. I'm doing everything I can to, to fly straight and center the ball, if you will, with the yaw. And I'm getting closer and closer to the tower. I cannot gain altitude. I'm probably 60 to 75 feet above the ground. And, and my first thought was, okay, I've never planned for this. I've never trained for this, not hitting a control tower. Just fly the, just fly the airplane, right? So that's what I did. I was able to to miss the control tower by about 100 feet laterally, as, uh, as those controllers later told me. And then it was handle the next problem, handle the next problem, and, and on from there. And again, the scenario I was in, the solution was you eject. Well, I had to now get beyond the base perimeter. I'm just trying to get one or two knots more. I'm trying to get 50 feet if I can. And, uh, but all I'm doing right now at this point is flying this airplane, keeping it flying about 100 feet above the ground. And then th there's another thread out there right near the base, and it's a lava flow. And it's, a, uh, it's an ancient lava flow where lava flowed down the valley there. And uh, you don't want to eject in there because it's absolute jagged, solid lava rock. And uh, you would, we called it the cheese shredder. If you ever ended up in there, you, you'd probably die by a million cuts. So... My only choice was at that point at White Sands National Park, which is a, uh, a public park. There's people out there. So within a few minutes, I couldn't eject because uh, I didn't have enough altitude, didn't have enough airspeed. And if I were to let go of the control stick to pull the ejection handle, the jet just wanted to roll. 
and I probably would have ejected with a, a downward vector uh, into the ground. So I had no choice but to continue to fly the aircraft. I believe I, I made two radio calls at that point, declaring the emergency, letting them know I was going to eject. And I'd never trained to this, but I found enough uh, brain bites to, to tell them to launch the, uh, the uh, alert helicopters, the search and rescue helicopters. Another jet, another uh, squadron mate in a T-38 joined on me about a half-mile trail. In fact, they were demanding that I eject, and I finally just told them to be quiet, politely. You know, so I, I'm now flirting with 180, about 80 to 120 feet above the desert of New Mexico, approaching White Sands Missile Range, which is this pure alabaster white sand. It's absolutely gorgeous when you're out there. A lot of dune type of geography. And my plan was, okay, I'm going to eject out here somewhere. I'm not going to get 1,000 feet. I can't get any airspeed. Uh, I'll take whatever I can get and get out of the airplane. And so I, I started taking off my, my checklists that were strapped to my thighs. I removed my pens. I thought about the body position. I actually tested a couple times, if you will, could I let go or take some pressure off the stick. But the jet wanted to immediately roll. It was probably going to roll inverted. And then I look up and I realize now I'm in the national park and it's populated with people. And when you talk about time slowing down, like Ken mentioned, I, I remember vividly looking down. And again, I might be 100 feet above the ground at this point. I remember one of the campsites, if you will, in the park, picnic table, outdoor grill, silver minivan. There's a family right down there. I mean, they're, they're 30, 40 yards away from me based on distance. And I look off to my left and there's a red kite above my aircraft that's, that somebody down there was flying. And I remember just thinking, that's kind of cool. <laughs> but, you know, the, Ken can explain more, but, you know, I guess the brain does some weird things. And I was able to focus on that while I was really fighting for the life of this aircraft and, and mine. You know, so I couldn't eject. If I would have ejected there, I'd put the jet down into a populated park where families are enjoying themselves and it certainly would have been disastrous so i uh, squeezed off another radio call that i was not going to eject and now i had to deal with the next problem and the next problem was the mountains to the west that sit just short of uh, las cruces new mexico and and we had another rule that we trained to and if you couldn't if you couldn't get the jet turned i believe it was by 19.2 dme off a uh, holloman air force base you eject Again, it was a real if, but, or uh, logic sequence because the train would, would rise so quickly that you weren't going to be able to climb. So if you can't turn, you certainly can't climb. You're going to eject. And uh, I was able to ease some bank into the jet with the yaw, get the jet turned. And, uh, you know, long story short, I eventually recovered to, uh, to our east-west runway there, runway 25. Really never got above 200, 250 feet. Really never got above slow flying airspeed and, and safely came back and landed. It was it was fairly benign. It was a single engine landing rollout. Obviously, fire trucks, maintenance is out there. But there's no fire. There's no smoke. Very few lights in, in the cockpit other than what looks like an engine shutdown. And uh, at first, you know, the, the initial analysis was pilot air. You know, you must have shut down the engine, Doug. And, and I said, I didn't, you know, I'm. I'm certain I didn't shut it down, and and uh, it was a, a maintenance anomaly that they they thought 
could never occur in that aircraft. It was an overpressurization in uh, the bleed valves, which had failed over time, and it created just the right scenario aerodynamically, compression-wise with the engine to, to stall the engine without a compressor stall. So like I said, it was, it was fairly quiet, fairly benign. Like I said, we had always trained to this. One of my instructors early in, in my F-117 instruction, you know, just put the fear in me is, one, don't ever eject over the lava flow. And two, if you ever get in the plows, you get out of that jet and you get out of it because no one's ever flown out of it and no one ever will fly out of it. You know, I don't think I was lucky that day. I just, I visualized that plaz scenario so often in my head because I did not want to become a victim of uh, a limitation of the aircraft or the geography we were flying around. So, you know, I certainly attribute my success of able to fly and recover that aircraft today, not just to the simulators and all the training I got and the instruction I got, but I'm certain I, I would not have been successful that day with without all the visualization practice that I had done, the, the chair flying. I mean, I took it to heart. I know I did it more than anyone because they used to, you know, joke with me about it. And, they, you know, people would say, hey, just pull that yellow handle and eject and stop worrying about it. You know, and, and you talk about time slowing down and, and some funny things the brain does or you think about. I, I remember I just passed that campsite with the red kite and I, was, I realized, okay, now I'm going to have to eject way west towards the mountains Ironically, it was February 5th, 2004, which was my birthday. And the family, the family plan was, hey, I'm going to fly. I'm going to debrief. I'm going to come home. My wife and daughter were flying out of El Paso International that evening. And uh, so uh, down in El Paso, we were going to go out to dinner. And, and here's my mindset, Gary. I thought, the further I eject out here, the longer it's going to take the helicopters to pick me up and debrief all this. I'm going to miss my birthday dinner with my family and they're going to miss their flight. And that's probably a misprioritization of thoughts, but you think, you know, I know uh, Dr. Stahl can explain it in detail, but somehow my brain was able to uh, apply some conscious thought to that concern, that other problem I had right then in my life versus trying to recover that in addition to trying to recover that aircraft. So I don't know. Ken, what do you think? Well, I think it's it's probably the most amazing pilot story I've ever heard, which is why why I spent uh, so many, you know, over so many beers and steaks that we've shared, kind of trying to get the details of that and capture it. And like Gary said, it's all in the, it's all published in the AOPA site for more details. You know, I just think that that it it's a story that captures all the elements of pilot excellence, which is why I was, you know, spent so much time with you trying to trying to publish this story. I, I, the takeaway is several fold, and it was a perfect wrap up to the series on situational awareness and, and uh, imagination. And the key to what I think, you know, even general aviation pilots can take away from the safety lessons of your Bandit 650 experience, certainly one is this element of, of time slowing down. And as I talk about in some of those articles uh, following up on this, it's only about 10% of, of the world where your brain is wired in a way where you can slow down an emergency. Most people are incapacitated in an emergency. And that's just you know the nature of all those stress hormones blasting around in your brain. 
really make it hard to think. And the capability of putting those distractions and that clanging in the back of your head when something bad is about to happen, just disregarding that and focusing on, on the problem is truly a gift. But there are things, and, and they're all detailed in that article, that pilots can do to, to practice exactly what you've described. And certainly some of the neuroscience behind this is it's just you just don't have time in an emergency to, to sort out all the potential solutions. So what you can do, though, is you can practice all, the, all these scenarios in your head, just like you're describing, sitting in a chair, sitting in the hangar, sitting in the crew lounge. You know, when you just get at the end of the runway and, you know, you're waiting to hear clear for takeoff. I mean, I'm just thinking, where am I putting this plane if the engine stops? And, in, you know, in a multi-engine airplane, it's really not the, the engine that stops that gets you in trouble. It's the engine that's still turning that flips you upside down into the ground, which is exactly as you're describing. And if you really, you know, you just have it in your head, some possible options what you would do in an emergency situation, which is level three situational awareness. I, I think that, that this is a poster child example of that. If you've already pre-lived some of those possible scenarios, if it really becomes your new reality, you don't have to start scrolling through a bunch of solutions. You've already decided what you're going to do. You know, so I think that's probably the, the first takeaway lesson. And the second takeaway lesson is just just the value of training. The more you've, you've done your stick and rudder training, the more you've had a safety pilot and, and slapped a hood over your eyes, the more unusual attitudes you've practiced with a, you know, for, for your instrument proficiency checks. I mean, all that is, you, you kind of describe it as muscle memory. It's a perfect analogy. It's, it's just stuff that's hardwired into those bold print items in your brain and you just don't have to go fishing for solutions. They're just, you know, they just pop up because you've practiced them so much that they become second nature. So, you know, the title of that, of one of those pieces was Imagination, you know, a, a preview of life's coming conditions. If life's coming scenario is a, is a potential disaster and you've worked out the details in advance, it's going to end up with a happy ending, just as you're describing. That's amazing. That's just amazing stuff. And, and, and Ken, I, I remember reading the article, and it's been about a couple of three months ago now, and I was absolutely mesmerized by the detail that you were able to get to. But to hear Doug describe it in first person, it really puts a whole new dimension to the excitement, to say the least, of, of an, amazing, an amazing event. I know there's so much learning and knowledge that can come out of this that us as general aviation pilots can apply, but certainly before every flight. But I, I like the idea of, uh, of visualization. I've been watching the uh, World Aquatic Championships from South Korea, and I didn't realize that the platform divers are now diving off of 28-meter high platforms. And you see these guys at the top of the platform before they do their dive and they're going through the motions, their bodies are moving and their minds are moving probably at a million miles an hour, visualizing what they're going to do before they hit the water. So same type of stuff. Perfect. And the, the time has, has flown by. What an amazing, uh, what half hour or so that we spent here and what a, a great learning experience that Doug and Ken have, have been able to share with us. I really want to thank both of you for, uh, for taking the time to put this podcast together and for sharing your time and, and your expertise with us today. It's really priceless stuff when you think about it. 
we're looking a lot forward to more articles from Ken in the future. And uh, I also want to thank all the listeners who support and who benefit from our pilot protection services. It's a it's one of the best benefits I think that we offer to AOPA members, and we're really happy and thrilled that we're able to bring you the expertise of all of our PPS contributors like Ken, as well as our really terrific in-house staff of attorneys and our medical certification specialist here in the AOPA offices. We'll be back soon with another podcast, but I want to ask you, Ken, uh, what's what's down the road for uh, the next articles? You got a whole new series coming, or uh, well, who's in? Sure, the next one that I was just working on uh, when I when I dialed into the call, and uh, it came to my brain a lot. Actually, I was I was having a little bit of insomnia the other day, and I was flipping channels and came on some old rerun of one of those James Bond movies, and. Uh, I know time is and political correctness have long passed that stuff by, and I don't pretend to to say otherwise. But I was I was kind of thinking about how James Bond is always demanding his martinis shaken, not stirred. So the next article is called "Shaken, Not Stirred," and it's about exactly what Doug is describing. I, I've kind of talked about some of the some of the longer term problem solving in something less than the kind of acute emergency that Bandit 650 is. But those first 5, 10, 15 seconds when the poop potentially really hits the fan, you know, how you deal with that is uh, is really a critical time in, in whether you survive or not. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk a little about what's going on in your head when the bell really starts ringing and how to come out of it as successfully as, as this whole story of Doug's flight is such a perfect example of. That's great. Good to hear. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I get to edit uh, Ken's articles, and so I get to, to see them when they're still in draft form, and it's, uh, it's a great learning experience. Well, we're going to hit the road here, but uh, we will be back soon with another podcast. This was our first one in quite a while. In fact, it was the first one with Ken, so we'll probably uh, do some more podcasts with Ken further down the road. So in the meantime, uh, get out there and fly, but do it safely and uh, do it as often as you can. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Doug. Appreciate hearing from you. Thanks again for joining us today and have a great afternoon. Thanks for tuning in to the Pilot Protection Services podcast. We'll be back soon with more of your favorite topics and guests in general aviation. Pilot Protection Services is available only to AOPA members, and over 64,000 of those members choose to protect their certificates with PPS. It's a service we're proud to provide. Fly safe, and we'll see you soon.